In July 2012, Stephen Priest, after beating his wife, tried to murder two police officers with an AK-47. He pleaded guilty to attempted murder of police officers and was sentenced to prison. He's asked this court today to grant a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, releasing him early from prison. This court should deny the petition. The straightforward textual clues of this statute indicate that the legislature did, in fact, intend to and successfully covered attempt crimes like the one at issue. Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show's sponsor. Ms. Clark, please call the first case. Priest versus Clark and others, Vishal Agraharker, Jerry Greenspan, Andrea Lynn Fenster, Appellants Council, Andrew N. Ferguson, Solicitor General, Graham K. Bryant, Deputy Solicitor General, Appellees Council. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please this court. My name is Vishal Agraharker. I'm with the ACLU of Virginia, and I'm representing the petitioner, Stephen Patrick Priest. And with me at the council's table is my colleague, Jerry Greenspan. Your Honors, this case presents a straightforward issue of statutory construction where we have a clear and unambiguous statute that uses precise language, but which respondents have chosen to interpret in a way that adds language to the statute that's nowhere in the text. In 2020, the General Assembly amended the Earned Sentence Credit Statute to increase the number of good time credits that are available to people who are incarcerated in Virginia prisons who have demonstrated good behavior and have worked to rehabilitate themselves while incarcerated. The General Assembly made those increased credits available to, in their words, any offense other than those enumerated in subsection A of the relevant section. Those offenses in subsection A include some inchoate offenses and not others. And the question before this court is whether that list should be interpreted in accordance with its plain meaning or whether it should instead encompass all attempts solicitations, and conspiracies to commit any of the offenses listed, including those like Mr. Priest's that are not listed. We would submit that the answer to that question, based upon a straightforward application of well-established principles of statutory construction, is that the plain language of the statute should control. Now, this court has been clear in case after case, including just last year in Appalachian Power Company versus State Corporation Commission, that we determine legislative intent by what a statute says and not by what we think it should have said. The statute is at least, a, the statute in combination with 531202.3 is at least a little inartful. It refers to a, not necessarily your client's attempt at 18, murder under 18.2-31, but it refers to a violation of 18.2-32. And given that's a punishment statute, I don't know how a citizen violates 18.2-32. It seems to me that at best we have to incorporate the elements of common law murder to, to constitute a violation of 18.2-32. Would you agree with that? No, Your Honor, the, or at least the, it... It's a relatively friendly question. It's, <laughs> so the statute incorporates 18.2-32, and but it is a... This, Mr. Priest was convicted of an attempt 
at that provision. And as I said, I understand that's one argument, which may be a very good argument for the case, but I'm a little more concerned about the statute more broadly. To the extent that one can violate 18.2-32, it would require one to satisfy the elements of common law murder, correct? Yes, that's right. All right. And that necessarily, by definition, involves a dead person. Yes. And we don't have one here. That's exactly right, Your Honor. We don't have a dead person here. And I would point this Court to the way the General Assembly refers to inchoate offenses throughout the Code. And we have examples throughout the Code where, when the General Assembly means to, it very explicitly refers to inchoate offenses. And it specifically says, and we point to a few examples of this on page 7 of our reply brief, but there are many more. I would point this Court, for example, to, and this one wasn't in our brief, but it's section 9.1-902. This is the Code section on criminal offense registries and registries for crimes against minors. And there, the statute provides that the offenses that require you to register upon release from prison include any violation of, attempted violation of, or conspiracy to violate various Code sections, including things, including actually the offense at issue here, at least where that's committed against a minor. That's exactly the type of phrasing that could have been in the statute and would have been in the statute if it was intended to cover Mr. Preece's offense. But it isn't in the statute. But while we do have mentions in the statute of subsection A to solicitation to commit murder, the combination of those two makes clear that this is the kind of case where this Court has consistently applied the negative implication canon, where some things are in a list that's provided in the statute and other things aren't, that this Court is required to presume that the choices made by the General Assembly about what to include and exclude were intentional. You're making a classical textualist argument, are you not? I am. The canons that we would say are most applicable here are just the ordinary plain meaning canon and the negative implication canon. This Court has consistently and dependably applied those canons in cases like this, especially with enumerated provisions like this. So whether this is good or bad public policy is not before the Court? That's absolutely right. That was before the legislature when it drafted this. And we don't know what was in the minds of the various legislators that decided what things to include and what things to exclude. What we're left with and what this Court is left with is what's in the text of this statute. That's how it determines legislative intent under the Vardek. Probably the better way to say it is that's how we ascribe legislative intent. That's right. And I think in Tavardek, for example, the way this Court articulated that was we don't ask what the legislature meant, we ask what the statute means. And it said this exact same thing in three or four different ways, more artfully than I could, but we're left with the same thing. We're not looking at or concerned with the policy implications of any of this. We quoted that, but it was actually Oliver Wendell Holmes who said it. I believe that's right. And I just didn't go that far back in the research, but I think that's exactly right. So just turning to the response argument about the phrase any violation of, they place a lot of weight on the word any, that because it says any violation of this offense, that necessarily encompasses things that are not listed. So we would submit that that is, again, that's not how the General Assembly has used that word anywhere else in the code. In the statute that I mentioned earlier, 9.1-902, it uses any violation of. But even if any is given the broadest possible interpretation, you still need to have a violation of the statute, which, for example, 18.2-32 
would seem to require a dead body. That's right. You, you can't, any can only bear so much weight. What it can't bear is that any violation of a certain statute cannot encompass something that is not in that code section. It is not a violation of that statute. Exactly. That, that's exactly right, Your Honor. And I guess further support for this, which isn't needed, but the statute also says that for any offense other than those that are listed in subsection A, the enhanced earned credit system applies. So if you're going to read the word any so broadly that we would submit far too broadly than that word can bear, it also would have to be read the other way. Because subsection B, which sets up, which is the structure of this statute, creates this presumption that these, these earned sentence credits apply unless you're in one of these code sections, and this one isn't. Your Honor, the, just to turn briefly to the absurdity argument, anti-absurdity canon, which the respondents raise. They, they rely on this canon. Again, this is, I guess, another way of saying what this court said in the cases that I cited, Tavardek, Appalachian Power Company, which is that, that, def, that the word absurdity has a very narrow legal definition that isn't applicable here. Basically, absurdity is used only when a particular interpretation renders a statute incapable of operation or causes some kind of irreconcilable conflict. Neither of those cases applicable. There's no suggestion anywhere in the record that, that awarding Mr. Priest the credits that he earned would, would cause the statute to cease to operate. And in fact, a response concede that the department was ready to let him go last July, at least until, presumably until the attorney general's opinion came down that reversed its earlier opinion. So this is completely capable of operation. It just doesn't fit within how this court has articulated that canon. And it's said in, in that, along the same lines that you know, because a litigant or a court believes that an interpretation is unwise, improper, or inequitable, that's not absurd. Your Honors, at the, at the end of the day, there are many ways that the General Assembly could have clearly articulated that Mr. Priest's offense was excluded. It could have said, for example, attempts to commit a Class I felony under 18.2-25 in much the same way that it listed solicitation to commit murder under 18.29. That was excluded. It could have said attempted violations of 18.2-31, the aggravated murder statute. And that is, that, that's basically the exact language that it used in section 9.1-902, the statute I mentioned earlier about a sex offense and crimes against minor registry. It could have simply specified that all attempts, solicitations, and conspiracies related to any of these offenses were themselves excluded, as it has done in several other code sections, which we're happy to, to list off. But it, there are many ways, the point is there are many ways that the legislature could have clearly explained that this particular offense is excluded from eligibility, and the legislature remains free to amend the statute to do so. But until it does, neither respondents nor any court can read language into the statute that isn't there. Your Honor, this is a very straightforward case. The statute makes any offenses other than those that are listed in subsection A eligible for these enhanced earned sentence credits. Mr. Priest's offense is not listed in subsection A, and there's no basis to read language in the statute that the General Assembly did not include. And we know that the General Assembly knows how to specify inchoate offenses when it means to. Now, respondents are asking this court to work backwards from their policy preferences, from their assumptions about what the true intent of the General Assembly was in passing this law, and from their beliefs about what should have been included in the first place. But that's not how this court operates, and this oper which is to start from the text. And the text in this case is very clear. 
that Mr. Priest is entitled to these credits. Unless there are any further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. All right. You have three minutes and 25 seconds left. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a statewide leader in the personal injury field. We help the injured and disabled make great decisions about their legal situations. Visit our website at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829 for more information and a free evaluation of your case. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Andrew Ferguson on behalf of the director. I'm joined at council table by Deputy Solicitor General Graham Bryant. In July 2012, Stephen Priest, after beating his wife, tried to murder two police officers with an AK-47. He pleaded guilty to attempted murder of police officers and was sentenced to prison. He's asked this court today to grant a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, releasing him early from prison. This court should deny the petition. The straightforward textual clues of this statute indicate that the legislature did, in fact, intend to and successfully covered attempt crimes like the one at issue here. He was convicted of attempting to violate 18.2-31, correct? Yes, Justice Russell. That doesn't appear anywhere in the list of excluded crimes, does it? It, Your brief refers to 18.32, but that's not what he was... So I have a couple responses, Justice Russell, and I would also like to take up the question that you asked my friend on the other side earlier. And actually, if I could start with the one you asked my friend on the other side. I'd be fine. Your first question to my friend on the other side was, don't we need a dead body to prove a violation of the murder statutes? Dead body is incorrect. We need a dead person. You don't need the body. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough, Mr. <laughs> fair enough, Justice Russell. I think the answer to that question is no, and if you'll allow me to explain, I'll use the judgments of conviction in this case to explain why. The statute says that it's any violation of the murder statutes enumerated. In this case, for example, the statutes that he was adjudged to have violated by the circuit court were the attempt statute, to be sure, and also the underlying criminal statute. And this is one of the difficulties in my very first question. You can't violate 18.2.25 or 26. It's a punishment statute. It's a common law offense. 18.25 is the one that defines the punishment for attempt, yes. And 18.2. 2-32 also is a punishment statute. It is a punishment statute, but it does expressly describe what the elements are for someone who's going to be punished. It says a premeditated murder. But it doesn't give the elements of murder. That's true, but I think because it's clearly intended to codify the common law, it by the use of the phrase premeditated and deliberate, which are the elements of first-degree murder, I think it does, in fact, well, incorporate the, the elements. Back to my question, isn't there another element that requires a dead person? So I agree in order for the completed crime of first-degree murder to be proved, a dead person is required. But the question is whether you can violate that statute without proving the dead person. And at least the way that the lower courts have understood it, including Fletcher, for example, the Court of Appeals that we cited, when someone commits an attempt of a crime, it violates both the underlying substantive offense statute, like 18-2.32, and the attempt statute. And that's exactly how the circuit judge in this case also understood it. In the judgment of conviction, the circuit judge says that he had violated both 18.2-31 and 18.2-25. And so I think that any violation would encompass attempts because that's certainly how lower courts understand it. When you commit an attempt, you are violating both the attempt statute and the underlying statute. And Even though you haven't committed all the elements necessary for a conviction. So I... Necessary for a conviction of the completed crime, but for centuries it's been understood that attempt is a sort of species of liability for the underlying crime. That's how attempt emerged at the common law. It was always understood as a way of getting at the underlying intention as a species of liability for the underlying crime. So I agree 
There's no way that we could sustain our position if we were arguing that he had completed or he committed the completed offense of first degree murder. There's no dead person. I totally agree with that, Justice Russell. But the question is whether he committed any violation of the underlying statutes. And in our view, and it's sustained by the cases we cited, someone who commits an attempt is understood by the courts to have violated both the underlying substantive statute and the attempt statute. And the judgments of conviction in this case bear it out. Both are cited as the statutes that Mr. Priest violated in but this case. But if I'm not mistaken, the attempt under 26 is a felony, three, felony four, is that right? That's right, and Justice Kelsey. Obviously, murder is a felony one. That's right, Justice Kelsey. So obviously, that's gradation of punishment, but that doesn't make it a different crime, a different conviction? So I, it is true for purposes of Blockburger, for example, this is a different crime, and I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that beginning at common law when attempt emerged in England in the 16th or 17th century and carrying through to today, Although attempt was certainly understood to be a separate crime, it was also understood to be a species of the underlying crime, which is why every state in the union, including the Commonwealth, merges attempt into the underlying offense. One cannot be convicted of the underlying offense and of an attempt, even though under Blockburger, you absolutely could. You could separate them out, but the common law never has, and the reason for that is because attempt emerged as a form of species of liability of the underlying crime, which is why I think when the legislature says any violation of the underlying statutes, there's no reason whatsoever not to read that to include the violation in the form of the attempt, which, yes, also violates the attempt statute. But the attempt statute, as Justice Russell has pointed out, doesn't lay out any elements. The elements always have to require reference back to the underlying statute. So in Virginia, suppose for the sake of argument, we didn't have a 26 attempt statute and we had a murder punishment statute. We would revert to the common law to tell us the inchoate crime and it would be attempt, but it would still be a different crime. I, I agree with everything you said, Justice Kelsey. I just don't think that answers the question for purposes of Virginia's law about whether an attempt to commit the underlying statute is itself a violation of that statute. If, if you're right about attempt, if everything you said is correct, then the inclusion of solicitation is wholly superfluous. I don't agree with that, Justice Russell, for the following reason, and it's why we resist the negative implication argument that my friend on the other side has made. Negative implication as a form of clue about what the legislature intended tells us that when we have a group of like things and some from that group are selected in the statute and others are omitted, the ones that are omitted should quite fairly understood to have been intentionally omitted. But the first question for negative implication is are the things we're proposing to compare to each other for purposes of the inclusio exclusio canon alike? And I think the answer here is they aren't alike. There are lots of places in the code where, for reasons that escape me, the General Assembly has elected to separately define, and sometimes to separately define, the elements of certain inchoate crimes. And like we argued in our brief, the failure to expressly include those separately enumerated and codified inchoate crimes would make it very difficult for me to sustain the position here if that's what we were debating. If there was a separately enumerated attempt crime in our law that wasn't expressly included in here, given the inclusion of other separately enumerated attempt crimes, I would agree the inclusio exclusio canon would probably operate to keep that one out. But I don't think it's fair to compare the general attempt statutes with the separately enumerated and codified attempt statutes, they simply aren't alike. An argument you make regarding the solicitation being included in the, being included in the excluded offenses <clears throat> is that it wouldn't make sense to punish solicitation more harshly 
than attempt. But for the actual punishment of the offenses, the General Assembly has expressly <coughs> done that, hasn't it? Two responses to that. The first is, I don't, ultimately, that's an argument about trying, ultimately, this is an argument about what the text actually says. And we use that, and we stand by that, as an argument not to read the text to say what my friends on the other side say, because it, there's no rational explanation for why the General Assembly would have chosen to punish solicitation. But that's my question. Under Code Section 18.2-32, murder in the first degree is defined as a Class II felony. I'm right so far? Yes, Justice Russell. And that meaning attempt, as defined in 18.2.26.1, to commit that murder is a Class IV felony, as Justice Kelsey referenced earlier, correct? Yes, Justice Russell. Then on 18.10, that's punishable by a maximum sentence of two to ten years in the penitentiary. Yes. Solicitation under 18.2.29 to commit that same first-degree murder is an unclassified felony punishable by five to expressly explicit text. General Assembly says punish that by five to 40 years in prison. So a much longer maximum sentence, a much longer minimum sentence. So the General Assembly has made expressly the policy choice you say that they couldn't possibly have intended. I disagree with the premise in the following sense. We're here on attempted formerly capital murder. Again, at the time- Which the isn't listed anywhere in the statute so at all. 18.231 doesn't appear in 52 at all. I agree that the, te the code section does not appear. I have two responses to that. The first is, it is a class one felony, and paragraph one of 53.1-202.3 says a class one felony. But what does it say? Conviction of a class one felony. That's right. And we all agree he was not convicted of a class one felony. I agree with that. The point being, Justice Russell, that the question is whether they attempted to cover solicitation of second of first degree murder more harshly than attempting to murder a police officer. And our view is that there's no reason to read the text to read that because it's not a rational accounting of the legislature's policy judgment. But again, that isn't ultimately, like Justice Kelsey said to my friend on the other side, that isn't ultimately what we're here to decide. We're here to decide what the text says. And I think that any violation of the murder statutes necessarily encompasses the unenumerated attempt violations. And certainly, that's how the lower courts understand it. When you commit a violation, an attempt crime, relying on the general attempt statutes, you have violated the general attempt statute and you have violated the underlying substantive law. Assume for me that 18.32 was not purely a punishment statute. It actually set out statutorily the elements of murder. Could you say that somebody violated that statute if they didn't commit all of the elements? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here if I did, again, because I don't think, Justice Russell, we can or should read 18.32 and paragraph two of the underlying statute we're here about today, solipsistically. It has to be read in light of the entire law, and when anyone is convicted of an attempt relying on the general attempt statutes, they have violated the general attempt statute and the underlying law, which is true in this case. The statutes that the, the circuit court adjudged him to have violated were the underlying substantive law, attempt or murdering a police officer, and the attempt statute, which is consistent with how the common law always understood attempts, which is a species of violation of the underlying substantive law.
And one, I'd like to, if, unless the court has any questions, I'd like to address very briefly one of the arguments my friend on the other side made about amending the statute. So again, our position here today is that the statute doesn't need any amending, that its text quite plainly covers Mr. Priest's convictions. But I want to clarify what's at stake and some of the difficulties that amending the statute might propose. If this court were to disagree with the director today and were to hold that Mr. Priest's convictions weren't covered, I do expect there would be a push to amend the statute to cover someone who attempts to murder police officers with an AK-47. But my friends on the other side have argued in a separate appeal that this court has granted for next term that the Constitution disables the legislature from amending the statute for anyone who was sentenced before this law went into effect. So it is, in fact, impossible on the view they have taken in another appeal this court will hear next term. With all, with all due respect, is that something we should be even thinking about? Why don't we just stick to the task at hand? I totally agree, Justice Kelsey. I'm merely pushing back on my friend's argument that if the legislature's worried about this, they can simply amend it. Their position is, actually, you couldn't amend it for Mr. Priest in a separate case. And the other point I want to make, again... Their position for a different client. That's not their No, I, I totally agree, Justice Russell. The point being that there isn't a clean-shot way to amend this statute to cover Mr. Priest himself or the tens of thousands of prisoners who like him. I appreciate your answering his argument, but as Justice Kelsey said, that issue should not be something that we consider. I agree. The question here is the text, and we think that the text unambiguously covers Mr. Priest's convictions for the reasons that we stated on the, at argument today and in our brief. And unless the court has any additional questions, we ask that the petition for a writ of habeas corpus be denied. Thank you, counsel. You have three minutes and 25 seconds for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. My friend on the other side makes a lot of the fact that, or th this idea that when someone is convicted, their order of conviction, order of sentencing lists not just the statute relating to attempts, 18.26, or the code provision on the inchoate offense, but also the underlying offense. That doesn't mean that they were convicted of the underlying offense. They were does list the completed offense on the order of conviction, but that's not, that's, it just doesn't mean that he, Mr. Priest was convicted of attempted aggravated murder and not the completed offense. And furthermore, and perhaps more importantly, this is just not how the General Assembly refers throughout the code to attempts. Now, I mentioned what we have three examples on page seven of our reply brief on other code provisions where the General Assembly expressly distinguishes between completed and inchoate offenses. I mentioned 9.1-902. I would point this court to 17.1-805C relating to sentencing guidelines where it defines violent felony offenses to include any violation of various completed offenses and then separately any conspiracy or attempt to commit any offense specified in this subsection. This is the general practice that the, that the General Assembly has used throughout the code to distinguish between attempts and completed offenses. Of course, they're also sentenced differently. So there, it, it wouldn't make sense for the General Assembly just for the purpose of this start, statute starting to define the word any in a completely different way, it would potentially call into question the way that term and the way that phrase is used throughout the rest of the code. And there's no basis in this statute to, find, to, to draw out the distinction that they're trying to make between standalone and other offenses. It's not in the text. We couldn't find that distinction articulated in any, anywhere in the Virginia Code or in Virginia case law. So this is a new distinction to try to get out from under an appl the application of the negative implication canon that this court has, has said is dependably, consistently applied when interpreting statutes containing lists such as this.
unless there are any other questions on any of the issues, I think I don't have anything else, Your Honor. All right. Thank you very much, Counsel. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.